This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 11. I'm Pam Paladin. Welcome. We'll have three segments in this podcast, and in our first segment, the AAO's general counsel, Kevin Dillard, will brief us on guidance developed by the Federal Trade Commission for states regarding supervising regulatory boards. In our second segment, Kevin will offer some food for thought on your contracts with vendors. And in segment three, you'll be introduced to Dr. John Callahan, who recently joined the AAO Board of Trustees representing NISO, the Northeastern Society of Orthodontists. Kevin, welcome, and thanks for joining us for episode 11 of the AAO's podcast. Thank you. We'll talk first about the FTC's recently issued guidance for states in supervising regulatory boards. But first, let's refresh our audience about what led to this guidance, the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court several months ago on a case involving the North Carolina Dental Board. Kevin, will you recap that for us, please? Sure. Just briefly, in February of this year, 2015, the Supreme Court uh, ruled on the North Carolina State Board of Dentistry versus the FTC, and the bottom line is that that ruling changed the way the Federal Trade Commission can consider actions by state boards or state regulatory boards, not only just of dentistry, but any state regulatory board over any profession. It used to be that state boards had broad what they call state action immunity, which means that if a state through the government sits up a regulatory board and they follow their own procedures, that they're generally going to be left out of any kind of antitrust scrutiny by the federal government because we live in a a federal system, a split between federal and state government. The ruling was significant because it, it added a layer of process that states have to go through to qualify for state action immunity. And if they don't qualify for state action immunity, then another couple layers of process to ensure that they, even their their anti-competitive actions that they take would withstand federal antitrust scrutiny. And that's what the FTC guidance uh, is, that was just published a couple of weeks ago really kind of digs down and gives us a little bit more detail as to what that's going to mean. So this won't just be uh, relative to dental boards. This is any kind of state regulatory board. Any state regulatory board over a profession that's regulated by the state. Okay. So, yeah. And now the FTC has issued what it's calling guidance. Uh, Kevin, who's the guidance intended for? What does the guidance mean? Is guidance a law? Is guidance a regulation? What is it? The guidance is intended specifically for state regulatory boards that are affected by this decision. It is not. It doesn't carry the weight of law. They they go very uh, they're very meticulous in saying that it is not law. But what it is offering us is insight into how the top level staff of the FTC interpret the North Carolina Supreme Court decision and how they intend to interpret that decision and then apply it to state regulatory boards. So for all intents and purposes, at least until January of 2017, when a new president is sworn in and and the administrators change and new policy is set from the top down, you might as well consider this with the weight of a law. Who actually needs to pay attention to FTC guidance? Well, in this case, I think it's going to be the, the state dental board examiner. So I think if you're a member and you're sitting on a state dental board, I would expect to see your the lawyer, the state lawyer who oversees or is your counsel on the state dental board to probably issue guidance or even suggest regulatory or legislative changes to how the board 
is set up, if in fact it, it is set up in such a way that's going to be affected by this guidance. And it's possible that it may not be. Okay. What, what do you think of, uh, if there's a, a dental board member who's listening to this, what kinds of things can they expect? Well, uh, there's going to be more scrutiny. And I think most people would say that the FTC guidance took the interpretation of the North Carolina State Board Supreme Court decision probably a little bit further than what we expected it to take. What they did is they set up two questions. Uh, they, they said, number one, here's what we're looking for to ensure that the state regulatory body qualifies for state action immunity. If they qualify for state action immunity, then you don't have to worry about active state supervision. If you don't qualify for state action immunity, it doesn't mean that the rulings that are promulgated are invalid or would be subject to antitrust, but you have to then comply with the state supervision requirement. So I think it's going to add a layer of process probably to most state regulatory boards. Again, not just dentistry mm -hmm. uh, that regulates any, any profession, law to, to medicine to any, any number of you know, some states regulate a hundred different professions. So what in summary are the things that regulatory boards like state dental boards likely to have to do moving forward uh, to ensure compliance with antitrust laws? One of the things that's going to impact most boards is the, comp, uh, the composition of the board itself. In order to qualify for state action immunity, the FTC guidance says that, among a couple other things that probably aren't quite as relevant to dentistry, that the, uh, the, the power of the dental board the these uh, market participants on the dental board can't have controlling power. Now you might think let's let's take an easy example of of a dental board at say of nine examiners or nine dental board commissioners. You might say, well that that means that if you only have four active mar market participants on the board and say five members of the public that that protects them from state action immunity, then they don't have a controlling power. But let's say that state says for any rule promulgated, you have to have six votes, even though only a minority, four out of the nine, are dentists or active market participants, I should say. Even though it requires the vote of one active market participant, they essentially have veto power over any regulation. Mm -hmm. So even if you have a minority on the board, even if it only takes one vote of an active mar market participant, it's going to qualify you for additional scrutiny and you're likely not going to have state action immunity just simply because of that fact. And by the way, it's, it's obvious question might be with our listeners. Well, what is an active market participant? What if I'm an orthodontist and we are considering a regulation against something that I don't even do by scope of practice, by tradition, um, by, by licensure, whatever, it doesn't matter if you are regulating something in general dentistry, even though you don't do it again, by tradition, you are still an active market participant as defined by the FTC. And it's just, it's just the way it is. So if you're in the dental industry and you, you're therefore a, an active market participant, even if you're retired. Sounds like kind of a Wild West situation until uh, 2017 at least. Well, the FTC, I think it's fair to say that the FTC wants these state boards to fall under antitrust scrutiny. As a matter of fact, in the guidance it says, by the way, uh, you, you can ignore all of this advice. You don't have to set your board up like this. You don't have to worry about the active state supervision if you don't qualify for state action immunity if you are willing to subject all of your decisions to FTC scrutiny, and that's their preference. So they want the state boards to say, I, I think they want the state boards to say, you know, we don't want to deal with this. We're just going to submit all of our 
opinions, perhaps, to the FTC and get their approval before we promulgate them in our state. That seems so unreasonable. Is it, there really time? Does the FTC have the staff, the time, the expertise to be able to do this? Well, uh, my commentary on it is no, they don't. Uh, they don't have the the time or the expertise or the staff to enforce what they already have in their in uh, in their inbox, so to speak, as it is. But you know, under the current administration, under the current uh, government that we have. The trend is for greater centralized control in Washington of a lot of decisions that have normally been made by the state. We saw some of that with the Affordable Care Act and and the uh, challenges to the uh, Medicaid, Medicare grants, and and the challenges that went up to the Supreme Court even for that. You know, on the other hand, you you can have a controlling number of dentists on the board. You could have in our scenario, you could have nine out of nine general dentists or orthodontists, active market participants on that board, promulgating rules. That doesn't, on the face of it, mean that these rules are going to be invalid under the FTC. They just they say if, if you don't qualify for state action immunity, then a state supervisor has to have some kind of influence over the final decision. And that's where it gets really tricky. Because then you have perhaps an unelected or an unappointed state supervisor. It doesn't really say who the state supervisor has to be, other than the fact that it cannot be an active market participant. And they say in their guidance that the purpose of the active supervision is to determine whether the state has exercised sufficient independent judgment and control such that the details of the regulatory scheme have been established as a product of deliberate state intervention and not simply by agreement among the members of the state board. Okay, And they say they go on to further say that that is to ensure that states accept political accountability for anti-competitive conduct they permit and control. That's a direct quote actually from the North Carolina Dental uh, Supreme Court decision. And, and they said that it, in that decision, the court only identified a few constant requirements of the active supervision. They said the supervisor must review the substance of the anti-competitive decision, not merely the procedures followed to produce it. That's probably one of the bigger changes. The FTC, uh, stepping back before this decision, had said if as long as they follow their own procedures, they have state action immunity. They're complying by the laws of the state. And that's what the minority of the Supreme Court in that decision said. You know, we're stepping, the federal government is now stepping into a realm which traditionally has been left to the states. They also said the supervisor must have the power to veto or modify particular decisions to ensure they accord with state policy. Now, this is probably going to be where we have most of the follow-up litigation. Because you have, uh, let's take an example, easy example, nine, uh, uh, dental board of nine. You have all nine active market participants. They promulgate a rule that is anti-competitive. Uh, which is what dental, which is what all state regulatory boards do. That's what they're meant for is to is to limit the competition to ensure public safety. But this guidance is saying basically that uh, the state supervisor is going to have the power to veto or modify particular decisions to make sure that they accord with state policy. You know what is state policy? Uh, who knows? I think a you could conjecture. You could you could I guess look at the the, the North Carolina State Board decision going back. And one of the reasons that it made it to the Supreme Court is that the dental board was regulating teeth whitening. Teeth whitening was never mentioned in state law or even dental regulatory board guidance up to that point as being under the purview of only dentistry. That was one of the problems. I think if if the dental board in North Carolina had not attempted to regulate something that they weren't given the power to regulate by the state, even though most of us would look at it and say common sense says the teeth whitening is a dental procedure. 
they wouldn't have gotten into trouble. So I think that's what they're getting at here is a state policy is saying the state supervisor looks at something and if that regulatory board acts outside of its purview, acts outside of its uh, authority, then the supervisor has the ability to veto it. Now, you might be thinking that you have a state board of dentistry that is elected. They're experts in their field. Again, whether it be dentistry or medicine or law, whatever, they are promulgating rules that can then be vetoed or modified by a state supervisor. And what is the recourse for that? And that's unclear. That's going to be left up to state state law. I mean, I would imagine some states might look at that and say, well, we're going to have to have some kind of check on the state supervisor to make sure that they're doing their job. Right. And who is a stu- state supervisor? How do I, they get to be the state how, supervisor? How do they get to be the state supervisor? It doesn't doesn't prescribe a particular way. I would imagine in most states that state supervisor would be the highest uh, political appointee or elected official statewide overseeing the state departments of health or or the health the, the health department of the state. I would imagine at least, mm-hmm. or at least somebody in that office who would report then to that secretary is my best guess okay. as to who that's going to be. Well, it sounds like this would be something that would really behoove members to see what's going on in their own states and and keep track of that. It, it absolutely it does, and and to to muddy the muddy the waters further in the FTC guidance, it says that the inquiry going back to the state supervisor, the inquiry regarding active supervision is flexible and context dependent. And they quote, the adequacy of supervision will depend on all the circumstances of a case. So what does that mean? It it, it is going back. It's flexible and context dependent. So what we used to have was a fairly predictable pattern of regulation. And what has happened now as as a result of the North Carolina case is some confusion as to when a rule is promulgated, how long it's going to take for it to be approved, who, who approves it, and even if it is approved, then it's still possible to be um, challenged because it's flexible and context dependent. Somebody could say, well, mm-hmm. you, you, you reviewed it, you approved it, but you approved it under the wrong context. All right. Here's a, here's a fun thing for you to do. Put, uh, look in your crystal ball, Kevin, and what kinds of changes do you expect will, will happen as a result of the guidance from the FTC? Well, first of all, I think it's going to add a lot of uh, working hours to state attorneys who are trying to interpret this and come up with the best ways to do it. I think immediately, I think what you're going to see is likely a move to put more non-active market participants on regulatory boards. Again, if you qualify for state action immunity, so going back to our earlier example with the dental board, if you don't need at least one vote from an active market participant to promulgate a rule, Uh, Say in our case, we only have three active market participants. You need a six-vote majority, or you have four market participants and five public, and you only need five to promulgate a rule. Then you fall under state action immunity, and you don't need that active supervision. So I think there's going to be a calculation among states politically and uh, within the legal hierarchy of the state to look at this and say, do we want to qualify for state action immunity so we don't have to go down the road of active supervision? Or do we want to then probably the the other side of that is to maybe move away from public directors on regulatory boards, stock them entirely with active market participants, and then have a lock solid or as lock solid as you possibly can scheme for active supervision. Great. 
That is Kevin Dillard telling telling us about the FTC's uh, guidance for states and supervising regulatory boards. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, Kevin will be back to talk about your contracts with your vendors. Trying to straighten your teeth yourself can cause serious damage and tooth loss. Moving teeth is a healthcare procedure that needs the supervision of an orthodontist. These are experts in moving teeth and aligning jaws. For more, visit mylifemysmile.org. Welcome back to Episode 11 of the Business of Orthodontics podcast. I'm Pam Paladin with Kevin Dillard, the AAO's General Counsel. And in this segment, Kevin is sharing thoughts on your contract's with your vendors. Kevin, are there certain contractual clauses that members should look for in contracts offered by vendors? Yeah, Pam, I think the general rule, as with, with contracts with anybody, is buyer beware. There are several contract, there are several clauses, I'm sorry, in, in contracts that, that should be there, but I think we need to bifurcate to the types of people that you're doing business with. You know, there are going to be long-term relationships that you have with certain vendors. And in those cases, you know, if there's trust built up, if there's a good relationship, you probably have to look at those a little less harshly than you do perhaps new vendors or vendors offering new products that might be, you know, either untested or new to the market or something like that. In those cases, I think you really need to look at guarantees. Um, in the one, contracts? In the contracts. In the, writing. The, in writing, guarantees on their product. Make sure that you have plenty of time to evaluate a new product and to return it for a refund. Be wary of disclaimers of warranties. A lot of companies like to put disclaimers. They like to disclaim uh, certain warranties, and, and by law they have to do it in the big, bold print, so it's not hard to find. But they'll try to disclaim warranties of merchantability, warranties for fitness for a particular purpose. And what that means is basically they can sell you uh, a piece of junk that doesn't work, and they've disclaimed their warranties, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it or your ability to recover from them under the law is substantially diminished. So you want to look very closely at those warranties um, and what else is in the contract to make sure that um, you, you do have recourse against them. I mean, those are the, and also, again, I can't emphasize it enough. You need to scrutinize the uh, payment terms to make sure that the payment is not all up front before products are delivered. Um, or services delivered, and you need to make sure that you have a good ability to to get your money back if unfortunate circumstances should arise that make that necessary. And that does happen from time to time. It does. What uh, due diligence should members perform on on companies that are offering products? Well, a lot. Uh, and again, unless you have that established business relationship with them, and you know them uh, if they're not a public company. I, I think that's that's one thing. I mean, if you if it's a public company, it's a little bit easier to do due diligence. You can look at their SEC filings. You can see what their assets are. You know if they're solvent. I think the bigger problem is when it comes to companies that are not public. There's not as much information about them. They and they may promise in those cases. They may promise a 100% money back guarantee if you're not satisfied within 90 days. But you know, Pam, that doesn't do you a whole lot of good if they're bankrupt. So you need to do some due diligence to see what the solvency of a vendor is to make sure that if you are outlaying quite a lot of money, that, you, that, that you're going to have a reasonable chance of getting that money back and that they're not insolvent. How to go about doing that, it, it, it's hard. You can ask them. Uh, you can ask them to buy insurance. 
against such losses and, and, and get proof of that insurance. But um, the bottom line, again, it's, it's, it's buyer beware on a lot of this stuff. It's just, I, I want our members to go into contracts with, with open eyes and with a healthy dose of cynicism. Uh, because it is a business relationship, no matter your relationship with the people that you're doing business with outside of business, it when it comes to money, you, you have to make sure all of your T's are crossed and your I's right. dotted, so to speak. Is this also a time when it's good to have your own practice attorney, something that we've talked mm-hmm. about in a previous podcast mm-hmm. uh, that you could go to to consult um, and on different uh, different things that are specified in a contract. Absolutely. Contracts like this, uh, most most attorneys are, are qualified to take a look at this and, and throw some red flags. If you really, if you're looking at a very large purchase, you might, uh, your attorney, if you have one, if you don't, uh, you, you likely want to go to a commercial transactions attorney to make sure that all of the, that, that you are adequately protected. Having your own attorney too also influences another common clause a lot of vendors would like to put in contracts, which is an arbitration clause, which says that if there are any conflicts arising out of the agreement, you neither party can sue the other party before you first go to arbitration. And even after you go to arbitration, if the process is met, then you still can't sue. Uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding arbitration clauses. The general rule of thumb is whoever has more money and who's in the better bargaining position, it suits them to not have the arbitration clause because a lawsuit is threatening. Typically, if you sue somebody, if you sue a company or if they sue you, you, you know that by the time you get the, by the time you get served by the suit and by the time you have your attorney open the letter or you go out and take the time to find an attorney to open the letter, you've already racked up a couple thousand dollars. By the time you get to litigation, even, even smaller potatoes, so to speak, litigation, you know, over, let's say over a hundred thousand dollar contract or an $80,000 contract, the legal fees in most areas in the United States to take this from trial, from the, from the deposition stage to document discovery, to, to, uh, civil litigation, probably going to be easily 20 to $30,000 per, per party easily. Now, some states you can recover if you win your own legal costs, depending on what your contract says, but very few people want to go through that. And very few people want to take on that cost knowing that they might also lose. It's also time, and time is money. So those, that's why those arbitration clauses are are important. Is it, it something our members should ask for in their contracts? Well, it, it, again, it depends. I think if you are looking at a very large company, maybe arbitration is advisable because then at least you know you get before an arbitrator. If you're looking at a very large company and you you don't have an arbitration clause and you try to sue them, they're going to have a lot more money in their legal budget. And, you know, they, they might just try to outlast you. That's what lawyers try to do a lot. I mean, it's, it's a legal strategy to outlast and bankrupt your opponent until they compromise in, in a favor, favorable compromise for the, for the person in power. On the other hand, you know, if you're dealing with non-public smaller companies, perhaps it might be a good idea to not have an arbitration clause because they also don't want to defend a lawsuit. And lawsuits, by the way, another aspect of this, which is important, bears mentioning, lawsuits are public information. And if a company is sued, even before it goes to the, it goes to stage two, so to speak, once they're served and it becomes public information, when they go out to banks to try to get credit for new products, even if it's not related to this litigation, this is going to pop up. It's going to be a liability they have to likely disclose to their auditors. If they're a public company, 
they likely have to disclose a potential liability on their public statements. So there's a little bit of a PR aspect to it as well. On the other hand, if you're a sole practitioner or if you're having, you want to protect the reputation of your practice, you likely don't want in the public record your name in a lawsuit sure, because it's just not good PR. So that's another aspect of this too. Arbitration on the plus side of that equation keeps it out of the public record. And it's a private settlement. 99% of the time when a case is arbitrated successfully and the process is followed, it's a compromise on both sides most of the time. And there is a non-disclosure agreement. So it's it's a private settlement. You come out of it and um, neither party can talk about the terms of the settlement most of the time. Uh, can problems arise with regard to vendors or companies interfering with patient treatment? It's possible. It's not, it's not a common thing, I don't think. But you, you want to pay attention. I mean, the general rule of thumb is, and this is the, as, as old as medicine itself, you want to do everything in the best interest of the patient. The principles of ethics of the AO state very clearly, this is one of the oldest principles of medicine in general, stated with, I guess, modern terminology. And here's, I'm, I'm quoting directly from the AO's principles of ethics and code of professional conduct. And it says, members shall make treatment decisions and render all related opinions and recommendations based on the best interest of the patient without regard to a member's direct or indirect financial or beneficial interest in a product or service or direct or indirect relationship with the manufacturer or supplier of such product or service. So what that means is that if you have a patient walk in and you examine them, take diagnostic records, and then render a treatment decision, it must be done in the best interest of the patient and not thinking about this vendor over here wants me to treat these patients and this vendor over here wants me to treat those patients and I'm going to be making more money if I treat this patient uh, with with this vendor's products. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you don't make decisions. Uh, some of the times those decisions are going to result in using one manufacturer over another. It's what you're comfortable with. That's also the best interest of the patient. So there's some area here to say you're not, you don't have the duty to examine a patient and treat and make a treatment decision based upon all of the products available in the industry. You're going to be familiar with certain manufacturers, certain products. What you have to do within your ability and within your experience is render those treatment decisions based upon the best interest of the patient and not exactly, not, not always where the highest income is going to come. It, it's common sense, you know, when you think about it. You're, you're doing what's best for the patient. Sometimes, and again, it's not common, but you want to make sure that vendors, when you're in, in contracts with vendors, that they don't try to interfere in those decisions or put things in writing that might look bad later on um, as far as just interference with, with treatment decisions. That's, I think that's a cautionary tale. And again, something I would guess would be good to consult with your practice attorney when you're you're setting up contracts to see uh, what's in the best interest of your patients and your practice. Absolutely. And of course, they can always call you, Kevin, here at the AAO with uh, questions regarding uh, legal issues, legal and adv- advocacy issues in your practice. Kevin, thanks for providing AAO members with guidance on their contracts with their vendors. We'll take another short break. And when we return, my guest will be NISO trustee, Dr. John Callahan. 
It's cool to do some things on your own, but when it comes to straightening your teeth, trying to do it yourself can cause serious damage and tooth loss. The American Association of Orthodontists wants everyone to know that moving teeth is a healthcare procedure. It needs the supervision of an expert. Orthodontists are experts in moving teeth and aligning jaws. They have two to three years of specialized education beyond dental school in an accredited orthodontic residency program. They make sure that your own smile is your best smile. For more, visit mylifemysmile.org. And welcome back to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 11. I'm Pam Paladin. I'm joined by Dr. John Callahan of Central New York State, who recently joined the AAO Board of Trustees, representing NISO, the Northeastern Society of Orthodontists. So even though he's been elected by one constituent organization, like other members of the AAO Board of Trustees, Dr. Callahan is working on behalf of all AAO members. Uh, welcome, Dr. Callahan, and uh, let's help our audience get to know a little bit about you. Well, thank you, Pam. Glad to be here. How long have you been an orthodontist? Well, I personally have been an orthodontist for 32 years. My dad, prior to my coming into the practice, had been in practice for another 28 years. So as of this year, our practice is 60 years old. That's, uh, that's really something that doesn't happen very often in this day and age. Well, we've had a very good run, and it's been very exciting. So your dad drew you to the specialty? He did. And it was a situation where my father was a very, very good orthodontist. And back in 1980, when I was first uh, looking at going into orthodontics, I took a peek at his practice and realized he had great foresight and great enthusiasm and great passion. And I felt that I could learn quite a bit from him, and in fact, I have. I would bet in 32 years of practice, you've seen uh, crazy amounts of changes. I guess the best way for me to phrase it is, is that my opinion, which I did get originally from my dad, is the status quo is change. We are always evolving. We're evolving both as a, uh, a profession, and we're also evolving as a business. You have been active in AAO and NISO for a long time. Uh, in fact, you're a past president of NISO. What, uh, what other kinds of volunteer activities have you been involved in? Well, in addition to going through the ladders at NISO, I also was uh, a member of the NISO House of Delegates. And at one stage, I was also the delegate chair. So you have been deep in all of the, the uh, goings-on for AAO and, and NISO. Do you think it's important for AAO members to be involved in leadership positions? I believe that any association, but particularly in this instance, our association, will only continue to grow and be better by having individuals be a part of our governance structure. You know, it is such a wonderful profession but it is being bombarded all the time from many different sources. And for us to keep it at the very top of the platform that we would like it to be, we need the best and the brightest to be part of our governance. Dr. Callahan, what kinds of councils and committees are you involved in this year as a member of the AAO Board of Trustees? One of the interesting things about being a new trustee is that you find out just how many different committees there are associated with the board. And my opportunity this year is to work with the Council on Orthodontic Practices, the board liaison. And in addition, what I am also on are several committees 
that I am finding fascinating because I didn't necessarily know much about them. One of the committees that I am on is a committee that was working directly with the dental service organizations, which are large non-dental owned corporations that are now hiring many of our new and younger members and residents as part of their organization. And it is important as far as I'm concerned that we create good relationships with these organizations so that we can maintain good connections with our members and also see what we can do to add added value to both the corporation and the members that are part of that. Another committee that I am on that I, I have found fascinating and very interesting is a committee that has to do with supporting research in a practice-based scenario. It's a collaboration between the AAO and the dental network, practice-based uh, dental research network. And it is such a good idea because it helps to bring us private practitioners right into the research part of our profession. And uh, it's an opportunity for us to really help make our profession a better place. So is that something that as, as a rule, then private practitioners are not involved in clinical research? It is not common for that to be the case. And in fact, in my 32 years of private practice, this is truly my first opportunity to feel like I can give back through some easy research. And uh, it's on a very critical issue for my particular practice, which is how to treat adult open bites. Oh, yeah, I think I did hear something recently about there being an anterior open bite study of adults. Correct. What has surprised you most since you joined the AAO Board of Trustees? When somebody joins a new board, you really don't know what to expect. You may have had some background conversations with people, and people have told you their own personal stories. But the reality is, until you actually become a member of the board, you don't know really what you're getting into. And the biggest surprise that I have had is the truly wonderful passion that I see from all of the board members for what we do. And what we do is we care about our members and we care about what we can do to make our profession the best profession it can be. And to watch these individuals as we go through our meetings and, and go through our board duties, it's inspirational because of the passion that I've seen. It is truly a wonderful thing. So Dr. Callahan, what do you see as the challenges that are affecting the specialty and, and those who are practicing orthodontic specialists? There really are an array of forces affecting the specialty and the business of orthodontics. Um, even before the residents and the young people begin pre practice, they must first figure out you know, how to launch their careers while carrying the baggage of heavy debt, uh, as well as facing really stiff competition in a lot of areas of the country. Moving forward, you know, the different stages of practice require us to gain entrepreneurial skills as well as keeping pace with clinical advances uh, and anticipating the trends of what um, a business has to deal with going forward. Um, and as, as our practitioners move toward the end of the, their career, transitioning towards retirement brings its own challenges. 
I feel that this is, this is what we do best as far as the business of orthodontics is concerned when we are talking about what we can bring to the members. We can help them as they go through their practice from the very beginning to the very end with the goal of them feeling as though it is the very best they could have done. You mentioned the debt that our new and younger members are, are facing. How do they deal with that? Well, it's a very difficult issue. Um, it, it's, it weighs heavily on the shoulders of many of the new folks coming out of practice. Uh, and it has, in fact, created uh, new business opportunities for not only other orthodontists, but also for non-orthodontists. Historically, our profession was geared towards private practice or small group practices. In this day and age now, there are much larger group practices and there are now uh, dental service organizations which have created opportunities for our residents to um, help alleviate some of their debt by going into these different practice modalities and being able to earn some money in order to help reduce the debt. In addition to that, I think that uh, uh, there are wonderful opportunities from the standpoint of the larger banks who still see orthodontics as a great investment from their standpoint. And they are still willing to help those residents who have a good business plan uh, in developing their own practices, depending on the area of the, of the country where there is opportunity for that to exist. We are still in a situation where if somebody wants to be an entrepreneurial orthodontist, their own business person, they can still do it. They still can. They still can do it. I still believe strongly that the opportunities out there exist for this to happen. It may not happen as it used to happen. It is once again a matter of recognizing that as we go forward, it is all about change. It is not a question of can we no longer do it, it's a question of how we get to that place. And we here at the AAO obviously have an opportunity to help people understand how that best can be done. So you're changing a challenge into an opportunity. And in fact, what we're doing is, is we are taking something that most residents still feel they want to do when they walk into their orthodontic programs, which is to be their own boss, and we are helping them to still get there even though they have these other hurdles that they have to overcome before they can get there. Those hurdles obviously being the debt and potentially the competition depending on where they choose to want to practice. What kinds of things does the AAO offer to help our, our younger members? Well, I think that probably the, the very easiest answer to that would be the business of orthodontic webinars, which I believe has an enormous um, library of information as a resource that they can use. At this stage, I believe there are well over a, a hundred webinars on the different aspects of starting a practice, on developing a practice, on determining systems on how do you hire and fire, what kind of legal issues that may exist. These are all part of learning the entrepreneurial aspect of orthodontics. The young residents coming out are superior in their clinical skills, uh, but they are very much in need of support at the, in learning the business of orthodontics. 
you know, uh, Gorp was here at, uh, in St. Louis this summer, and I overheard some uh, residents talking about business of orthodontics webinars, that, well, the recorded presentations, which are all available for free to all members uh, through the AAO website. They have set up their own study clubs. And so they each listen to a webinar or a presentation, a recorded webinar, come back and report to their group. And that way they're all sharing the information and they're all learning together about uh, how to be in, in business. The, it is a, very exciting and interesting that the, they are forming peer-to-peer -peer study groups in order to have these conversations. Um, it is how we all grow is by working with our peers. I think another aspect of it, which is just as important, though, is to take advantage of those who have already worked their way up through the different periods of our practice lives so that they can either mentor or help the young people understand what it takes to get to, um, to a better business place. You know, one of the things that I enjoy doing is I enjoy having uh, residents and new and younger members spend a day or two in my office so that what they can do is see how we may be successful at what we do and so that they can actually see it in practice. It is not something that you can always just learn from a book. Real experience is, is very different from textbook Indeed. experience. <laughs> So what other kinds of practice transitions? So you're transitioning into practice. Would, there be, would it be considered a practice transition if you were to bring on a partner or an associate? Well, of course. It, you know, when we talk about transitions, sometimes people simply think of a buy-in or they think of a buy-out. And in reality, we're always transitioning throughout our career. In our, our particular situation in our office, since um, I went in with my, my father in 1982, since then we've brought on two new partners and, and in the last couple of years another third new partner who he himself has great debt and great concern about how he's going to be able to move this forward. And we've made it a success for him to be a partner and also a success for our practice because we needed a young man in there to help sustain the business, um, which I think is a very key part of almost any business, whether it's an orthodontic practice or a company that sells widgets. You need to be able to have a succession plan in place, um, and that is something we have been very successful at. You mentioned uh, transitioning into retirement. Do, do AAO members actually get to retire these days? Most orthodontists love what they do. Um, there is a time in one's life when we feel that we need to start looking at leaving what we love to do, but it's a very hard thing to do. In many instances, we have a tendency to wait too long to pay attention to our transition going out simply because of, of our love for our patients and our love for our practice. But the reality is, is that in a business sense, you have to pay attention to what, what your practice is worth and you need to pay attention to the timing of what you may choose to do and whether or not you're interested in selling your practice or bringing somebody in. And uh, quite honestly, I think it's something that people should start paying attention to 10, 15 years before they think they're going to retire. Because only at, with that kind of early uh, anticipation can you really 
do a, as good a job as you would like to retire in the manner that you would like to retire. So, Dr. Callahan, when we started uh, our conversation a little while ago, uh, you had mentioned the the, the great uh, entrepreneurial spirit of our of our members, old and young. Um, they're really are wonderful people with lots of resources from the AAO uh, to help them be successful in every stage of their practice. Absolutely. And I think that my hope is that the membership will take advantage of these resources because they truly are an invaluable source for them to help their practice as they move forward. And if I can do just a little uh, a little blurb for the AAO, if you go to the member website, aaoinfo.org, hover over practice management and look for the link that says business resources. And there you will find links to, uh, for example, the U.S. Bank Practice Lending Program. Uh, there is also a link to SoFi for those uh, members who are interested in refinancing their student debt and a number of other wonderful resources to help all of our AAO members be successful in every stage of their practice. I think that it's important for people to at least reach out who, who have the need and talk to these different groups because they really can offer a solution to some of their problems. Dr. John Callahan, trustee from NISO, thank you so much for joining us on the Business of Orthodontics Podcast 11. I appreciate it. Thank you, Pam. And that's a wrap for the Business of Orthodontics Podcast, Episode 11. I'm Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions for topics, please email those to info at aaortho.org, and we would be happy to entertain your questions and comments. Also, look for Dr. John Callahan on Facebook and uh, contact him, too, with any kinds of questions and comments. Thanks for listening.